This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything going on at Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. Check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. So my guest this week was Christopher Susie. Um, I'm not going to lie, this is a piggybacked episode off the Savage Wonder podcast, but um, Chris had an interesting life as a military child and then in his own very adventure-filled three years of enlistment where he managed to do two combat deployments um, and before the GWAT, which is kind of interesting. So, And then he went on to become a very successful and interesting writer. Um, so for all those reasons, um, you know, I wanted to talk to him. But I also tried to put a little bit of thought into when we were going to broadcast this episode for you guys um it is the holiday season and we've had some great episodes and i was like well this seems like a nice um interesting way of ending the year um but at the end of the episode i there's some stuff i i wanted to talk about that i think are, are is of interest to the veteran community so stick around for that or if you're so inclined if you really are so um philosophically indisposed to listening to Chris Susie for some reason, you can skip to the end and uh, hear just some comments that I wanted to make uh, to wrap up the year. Our next episode will be the official Profiles and Havoc year-end event, or year-end episode, I should say. I don't know why I called it an event, but year-end episode, which will be fun. Uh, that's going to be myself, Charlie Faint, uh, Lisa Suderman, and uh, Mike Warnock, the editor-in-chief of Havoc Journal. So that'd be really fun to have all them on and, and talk about uh, just a, a year-end summation on Havoc Journal and all things Havoc Journal related. But for this one, I wanted to say a little something myself. But Chris Susie is also interesting enough. I thought you guys would really get a kick out of what he has to say. And his military experience is a very strange one. So it's worth hearing. Okay, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. And without any further ado, this is Christopher Susie's profile in Havoc.
Welcome to the show, Chris. Oh, thank you very much. I noticed we're both in front of stark white walls, except yeah. mine, like my head is perfectly framed I was in this say, picture. You, you've got that nice saint look, your Renaissance <laughs> painting happening there. I'm like, oh, right, yeah. This is why I never do shows from home, except today I've got a sick kid, so now oh, sure. I'm doing this here. But now, yeah, I'm going to go through this whole show looking at a fucking halo on my head. It looks ridiculous. Um. Anyway, sorry, I had to get that out of the way. That's okay. Well, uh, I'm just now noticing that my, my computer screen creates like a glowing eye effect in my glasses. So I it, look... That's awesome. All right. Preternatural well, of some see, type. These are the reasons why we don't do it. We, we have a YouTube channel that we have never used. And this is why. Because every go. single time I'm like, we're not ready for that. We, we, no, we can't not, handle not, We can't not, handle not video. Not just yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, dude, it's, uh, it's great to have you on, man. Uh, yeah. This is, um, you know, you and I talked when I told you about, you know, how your plays did in the competition and everything. So I feel like I got a bit of a spoiler on you but i want to i want to recapture some of that feeling for everybody here um because it was like you were this mythical creature that it just emerged from the woods and i was like who the fuck is this dude like where are these fucking plays coming from like each one was uh, was so strong and so unique um so i guess let's just start with this that was praise that never amounted to a question but let me start with uh, with with this when did you start writing? When did you first get the interest in it? When did you first start applying yourself in any real way as a writer? So that is an excellent question. Um, I originally wanted to be a visual artist. I, I originally wanted to be a painter, uh, a sculptor. Actually, sculpture was was really big in my youth. Like um, I was introduced to sculpting when I was like 11 years old. Um, my father was military. So we lived all over the, the world and we were living in Italy at the time. And so, you know, going to see the master, seeing Michelangelo, uh, my teacher really was big on on getting out and into the museums. And so I really felt that art, uh, visual art was the way that I, it would all pan out. Um, and there were certain aspects of visual art that were uh, that felt very limiting in what I was trying to to, to tell people. I, I, I was I would always like stand next to my art and just like explain every little bit do you see this part where the person is here and do you do you understand what's happening here and uh what i what i basically learned was i i wanted to to tell whole stories and i think that good art tells whole stories when you when you're standing in front of a painting and you're just feeling all of this emotion coming off of the painting you're getting a whole story um but i wasn't a good enough artist to you know in that medium i wasn't I, I didn't feel that I was expressing well. So um, I started moving into uh, storytelling in, in in a more traditional sense, writing little short stories. Um, and my main issue with writing like short stories was I was, I was aimless. I was directionless. Uh. I just like put so much into, into it that it, it wasn't telling a story. Um, and I had a wonderful teacher who who just said, you know, you're a great writer, but you don't have any focus. Mm. You should try poetry. Because poetry condenses everything. You have to sure. you have to squeeze it into sure. form. Um, so you take these big ideas and you try to put it in the least amount of right. words or into a rhythmic pattern or into a rhyming pattern or into, you know, because there are no rules for poetry. You can, you can do that, but it has a function form that you can't really escape. So poetry started really cropping up as a way to express 
feelings, emotions, ideas. And, and, and it became kind of essential to my growth as a writer because I, I consider dialogue poetry. Uh, dialogue is condensing lots of thoughts because when we speak, we sure. don't iterate everything in our head. We, we, we finite. And the closer we are to a person, the, the more a person knows us, the less we have to say. Because they understand us, they understand our shorthand. They understand, you know, they 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 share that, you know, understanding of us. So, so whenever I talk to people about writing and writing scripts and writing shows and things like that, I say you should try poetry to help you trim your dialogue. Um, because the difference between, in my estimation, with script writing and like prose story writing is the extent of words you use, how many yeah. words you yeah. use in prose versus in in dialogue and in script and and so i liken dialogue to poetry and so the steps were i went from writing poetry uh, uh living in a world of, of poetry to scripts and because i've always been a theater kid like uh, forever um and then that became writing plays uh then i went into writing screenplays um and only like in the last I don't know, four or five years have I really sat down to think about writing short stories, like fully embellished, mm -hmm. you know, uh, which is a big, I, I, what you learn too is uh, script writers and poets, terrible grammar. We have, you know, mm -hmm. punctuation, yeah. you know, it, uh, because I'm so far away from when we learn punctuation and things like that because they don't exist in the same world. You know, where, where, where we, it, does the quotation end in a in a comma? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was a statement. That person obviously made a statement, but I'm going to put a comma so I can say that he said that. And I'm like, right. what? Uh, period, <laughs> periods outside question outside quotation marks. Periods because outside like, of quotation well, marks. Hey, there was what? other there was other text there too. So right. I should, it really makes more sense to go on the outside. Yeah. And the quotation the mark was 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 to create or or parentheses too. Yeah, it's like yeah. where does the period go? No, it goes inside the parentheses. But yeah. the, then that seems like that's all part of the parentheses. Where's the sentence? I don't know. So yeah, uh, I, I I got some rude awakenings because I've been a professional writer for ages, but right. I'm writing scripts and i'm writing dialogue um and and you don't really have a lot of that yeah issue yeah. at least you know uh so yeah i i want uh, i want to oh, yeah. dive in sorry i, I just wanted to uh, there's a ton i want to mine probably for the rest of the show based off everything you just said but i think the first thing that pops out to me is the dialogue because now um <laughs> we're going back over our files this year i was like i've read I think it's 800 plays, 10 minute and full length this oh, year. My Lord. Yeah. I mean, now that's because we did it to ourselves because we had two, iter or two iterations of the competition. So it's just a lot of submissions. I, I had but, noted that and I was, I, 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 somewhere I was confused in that whole thing. Yeah. Uh, no, it, it was, it was nuts. We're never doing that again. Like I'm doing year long competitions now. I'm like six month long competitions is just too fast um, to turn all that around. Um, but the biggest, I mean, the, easiest way to cut plays because obviously when you start reading that volume you're going just give me a reason to move on to the next play right and right. it's like the easiest way and, and you hate to say that because you want to be especially when <clears throat> you know i'm not 
your average nonprofit theater. Like I'm trying to do it for a cause. So I'm like, Hey, I want to be encouraging to veteran writers and really give them the full benefit of the doubt. But at a certain point, your brain is mush, your eyes are blurry. And you're like, sure. Okay, dude, you, you've, you've now crossed the, the, the river sticks and there's no coming back from this. And I got to move on to the next thing. And you start to look forward to those moments. But I think the easiest way to immediately invalidate a play and I'm saying this because if it's true for me, I'm sure it's true for a lot of people that are literary managers and dramaturgs and all that at theaters everybody's submitting to is dialogue. You know, the second you read just fucking horrible dialogue or exposition heavy dialogue, you're just going, that's it. Got it. I don't care how fucking awesome the premise is. And a lot of the premises are really awesome. Right. Uh, that you know, a lot of them you're like, oh, what a great fucking idea. But the the second it starts, the character opens their mouth and you're like, yep done. I'm not, I, I can't live with this. I got to move on. <clears throat> and that I think just in the first blush, you made it right past that round because of that attention to dialogue. And because of, and I want to ask you a little bit about that. I've never thought of dialogue as poetry. I think that's a really interesting way of going about it. How much do you focus on the dialogue? Are you the kind of person that needs to hear the characters in your head? to get them down on, on the page? Are you the kind of person that's constantly eavesdropping on people to pick up rhythm and speech? Like what's your process? Where's, where do you, where do you find your dialogue inspiration? So one of the things that truly gets in the way of writing is thinking. Thinking is one of those things that, that causes people to pain over every word and 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 it slows down the process. Um, so uh, I adopted a long time ago this concept of uh, eavesdropping. I am eavesdropping on characters. I am not responsible for what they say. Uh, and so it's 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 in a lot of ways. And and I, I'll tell anybody who who's interested in writing that you know go take an improv class. Uh, go, you know, uh, take some acting classes, take some some improv classes. Uh, improv is 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 one of the great tools. I actually run an improv theater company here in Savannah. And what we what we really push is to come become naturalistic about presenting ideas. When they come into your head, you know, don't overthink it because when you overthink it, you start to create an artifice. The artifice is made because you are thinking about what you're trying to say instead of saying it. So, you know, it's, 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 it's removing the filter. So when I write, uh, I, I do it in this very voyeuristic brain. You know, I'm, I'm uh, in my mind, I'm sitting in the room listening to these people go on. And, and one of the beauty mm -hmm. of that particular process is I get surprised a lot, you know, because I am, I am just letting the banter go back and forth. And then yeah. suddenly something is revealed and I'm like, well, oh, and and that is to me one of the rewarding uh, pieces of the writing process is being surprised by your own work because you're letting it go. You're you're not wow. you're not corralling it, you know. Uh, and and of course, this is my personal process. I know that other people have other processes and they work perfectly fine for them. And and you know, I would never sure. suggest there's a right way to do it. But the way I do it is uh, is sort of a free for all. You know. Um, both the scripts that I entered, I tend to consider my lesser scripts in a lot of ways mm. uh, because I'm still tinkering with the others. You know, I'm still wrestling with them, but those I felt had made it to a place where I was ready to, to let them go, which, again, 
knowing when to let it go is a big mm, is a sure. big part of the of the process. Uh, but what what is intriguing to me is uh, I have always been a very fast writer. That is basically my my bread and butter. Is I've had people contact me or or ask me to get something produced quickly. And so I can do that. And the way I do that is, is I alleviate myself of the responsibility of creation uh, by, um, by assuming this sort of, it's, it's, it's like an acting exercise in my brain, person A and person B. Uh, and I try to model them after people I know so that I have a sense of rhythm and, and pace and what would they say and things like that. And I very rarely find myself stuck because their interaction is, oh, and that's another thing about dialogue, by the way, make sure that it, it's connective, you know, because mm-hmm. a lot of people will throw non sequitur things in. And if it's not, if it's not connected to the last thing said, oftentimes mm-hmm. it's a trip in the brain. It's a trip in mm-hmm. the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you can make that up in performance. In performance, non sequiturs right. can become this. But to the reader who is trying to follow along and, and follow a, a dialogue system, uh, try to make it as connective as possible. Make it responsive. Make sure that these characters are responding to each other or to the environment or to something that's happening uh, so that you're not filling it with non sequiturs. The occasional non sequitur really sure. lands really sure. well. But know that uh, – because I think that that some people – are trying to up the ante by by putting yeah. a lot of non sequiturs in, or 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 travel down the road of absurdity, you know. Right. And, and, right. And it's like what what a lot of people don't know about absurdity, uh, in my estimation. Again, <laughs> I try to always suggest that these are just my thoughts. I, I I'm not I'm not a claiming authority on this stuff, but I do notice that when people do absurdity, they they kind of forget that the whole absurdist movement was in reaction to something. It was in reaction to a solid and rigid form. And so the absurdity was, in fact, a conversation back and forth for in a cultural way. So uh, so it did, in weird and very bizarre way, make perfect sense for the period. So if you're going to do something absurd, make sure that you're saying something with your absurdity. Make sure that the absurdity yeah. Yeah. is is not for the sake of being absurd. Uh, it, it is a, it is a shaking up of the cognitive, you know, process of uh, you know yeah. the reason why you know um, why Beckett is a yeah. genius is because you know he was he went through World War II and he had you know all of this weight on his shoulders and he had a world that was falling apart because they were clinging to something too rigid and so he created this amazing departure from the yeah. rigid. Yeah. Uh, and so today when we do absurdity, it's like, you know, it's been done, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so what, what are you pushing back against? What, right. what, what are, are you pushing you, back yeah, against? Yeah, yeah. You know, because I think that, that that's what theater art should be is statements. You know, um, uh, it, it's, it's fascinating to think about uh, when you, when, it, because as you get into that like community theater mindset of what's going to sell tickets, what's going to bring people in, right. you know, right. am I, am I, you know, uh, Am I a crowd pleaser yeah. or am I an advocate for something specific? And what I've, I've often found is a lot of community theaters do their anchor shows to, you know, to, to, mm-hmm. to fulfill the audience, but then they'll sneak in these subversive pieces right. to, right. you know, to be artistically expressive. So, yeah. um, so I, my advice as far as, as writers go for, for all of that yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is, is to know that, 
uh, we, when we create dialogue, it has to satisfy the, the, the audience, the reader, the audience. And, and when you, when you abandon the idea of satisfying a reader and eyes, because, you know, yeah, you should absolutely satisfy yourself, but keep in mind that you are the first audience of anything you write. Yeah. You are yeah. the first person to consume it when you're writing it. And if you are slogging through, maybe you're not enjoying it. You know, yeah. if it is this, if, it, if there's all this blockage and all this, this angst over, over, over creation, it's like, maybe it's, it, you need to give yourself a break. You know, maybe you need to yeah. lighten so, up. So what I wonder with your approach to dialogue, and I think that's, I, that's an approach I can empathize and relate to where you're eavesdropping on the characters, getting surprised by their dialogue. The conundrum that I can see as a very real possibility and that I've experienced in my own work is that then the plot gets out of hand ah. and you go, Oh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> so how do you straddle that? Do you, how rigid are you to your plot? Do you plot ahead of time? So you have some left and right guardrails. What do so, you do? That's an excellent question because, and, and here's, mm. here's the Chris Susie method of, <laughs> of, of writing um, or, or the metaphor I use. The metaphor I use is every story you tell, whether it's going to be a novel or a, um, a, uh, a play or a screenplay, whatever. Uh, think of it as a tree. And the plot is the trunk. You can have as many branches as you want, but they have to connect to the trunk or they're not going to be a part of the tree. You know, you can't just have a branch hanging in the sky, not connected to your tree. And these things become even more interesting because sometimes when you look at an old gnarly tree, it takes a huge bend. You know, there is, the trunk itself will bend possibly to the weight of a large branch that comes off of it. And you can honor that because you had this plot. So I do normally know from the get-go, from the moment I conceive of something, I understand its, its trunk. I understand the tree itself. Is that the, the first step for you? Is that is the trunk the, the first piece or yeah, is it, you, you know what's interesting? Starts? Uh, <clears throat> inspiration comes in all forms and it's usually condensed into a moment that I really want to see. Mm. You know, a, a a moment that really drives me because I, I could come up with ideas all day long, but it isn't until I have a moment that I want to build a show around. Uh, I want to build a story around, you know, that moment when somebody is doing something that I'm like, well, what's that scene? And is it at the beginning or is it at the end? Do I build into the scene or do I, you know, build away from the scene? Mm. Um, and that becomes this kind of thing. Uh, uh, the, one of the plays that I had entered was called Good Morning. And Good Morning was was predicated on this idea that there are such things as professional mourners in the world. Mm. That uh, and and it's it's apparently very popular in cultures that are highly repressed, like the Asian cultures. Um, and my mother had told me about this. My mother's Korean, and told me that you would sometimes hire a person so that the family can remain that stoic, you know, cultural presence, while someone else is just wailing at the top of their lungs. And you know, and they'll have like a little badge, and they'll sit. You know, they'll have a, a place of honor, 
and they'll just cry just mercilessly loud and, and wail because the society itself doesn't really condone that kind of show of emotion or that kind of level sure. of, uh, of emotional. Uh, and so, you know, professional mourners, if you're really good at wailing, you can get that. And I was like, that is such a fascinating thing because we live in societies that shun emotion. We live in a society that, that, that asks us to, to swallow so much crap and, and, and behave and, 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 you know, and still show up to work. The next day and still, you know, and, and, and it, it, it boggles my mind that we don't have, you know, just, well, I guess we do. <laughs> I guess we do have just massive amounts of, of mental strain and mental, you know, uh, pains that aren't addressed because even the act of looking for help has been uh, regarded as weakness or uh, or uh, the inability to sort your stuff out and you see that you see so many very strong people being crushed by the burden of the expectations that have been placed on them so uh you know so the moment of course was what happens when a a mourner shows up a professional mourner shows up but no one expected them to you know, what does that look like? And that was, you know, the, that, that one moment was, I would love to see that. I would love to see the conversation of a, of a family that has not been trained, has not been told, yeah. don't show your emotions. But I think we do. We do show up to funerals very somber and very quiet. And, you know, we, we, we do, you know, uh, unless you're in New Orleans, you know, unless, right. unless you've got a, a right. ragtime band playing, which is awesome, which is the way it should be. It should be huge celebrations and huge wailings, you know, it should yeah. be these things. So, um, so yeah, it, that's, once, it, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. I, I did not pick up on the, on, on so many colors that you just brought up there. Um, yeah, cause I could, I, I mean, I would say the two things that immediately come to my mind are, I think we are maybe more expressive than most cultures although i think in general you're right there's a human bias i think towards not completely unleashing there and then for my mind i was like and then the question becomes how much is there nobility in a stiff upper lip or is there a nobility in complete you know ripping open your veins and and what is the right answer there and then um, or is the right answer the happy medium, which is I think what most people try to go for. But it's it, but it becomes a different discussion. But it's interesting all the stuff that's brought up from the interjection of such an artificial element like a professional mourner, right? And well, it's and great. That's yeah, that's good. Yeah, the the wonder point. of it, and 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 uh, you know another writing tip is the audience doesn't have to get all of the pieces of fuel that you put into a thing, they yeah. just have to get the movement of it. You know, they just need to get that it works. You know, um, you never have to expose, like, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't have the, the, the sensation of writing out the whys of every moment right. or anything right. because one of the, one of the joys of writing is when somebody reads it and gets something that you either didn't intend yeah. or didn't realize was yeah. even there. And yeah. They're like, Oh, this is like that. And you're like, Oh yeah, I guess it is. You know? <laughs> but I, that was not my, my original yeah. intention. Um, but a lot of times when you put a bunch of ingredients into a pot, 
it'll come out tasting like another dish. You know, it'll come out tasting totally. like something. Yeah. And people will be like, oh, this reminds me of X, Y, and Z. And uh, and that's the letting go part of of writing is once you've written it and you, you and you've sent it to the next person, they get to own yeah. their feelings about it. They don't get to own the piece, which mm-hmm. is a totally different argument to have. Sure, <laughs> a, a sure, sure. Discussion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, people, who, uh, fans who who were like, "This, this is yeah. mine, and and you can't have it." Right. Um, right. But it is absolutely their experience, and 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 what it means to them uh, is is theirs, and and can't be taken away by no matter you know no matter how much you were like, "Well, that wasn't my intent." It was like, "Well, you know what? That's right. fine. That it wasn't your intent. It was their reception." Right. Right. So you can leave that to them. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated by that process of the process of creating through to uh, creation. Um, and, and why I started writing short stories was I realized that there, it, it's a more, it's a more streamlined way to get to the audience because I don't think a lot of people realize how many, how many stages between like a playwright and yeah. a producer yeah. play how many hands, how many visions, how many, you know, every actor yeah. has their responsibility to bring something of themselves into it. And that is, you know, and it's a beautiful communal experience. Right. And, um, and oftentimes the writer is, is the platform in which they stand. Uh, the director is responsible for what it looks like. And the actors are responsible for emoting and all of these things come into this wonderfully, amazingly put together piece. Um, but if you want to, if you want to have more direct conversation with the audience, you know, outside of being a monologue artist, right, uh, right. writing a story, you know, so that they, it's like, well, these are my words and that's their brain. That is the connection. It's me and them, not me to producer, right. to director, to right. actor, right. to scenic designer, to right. lighting designer, to, uh, and then to the audience. Are you a control freak? Do you Absolutely. like to have? Uh, uh, <laughs> and, and I said because because I mean by by being a playwright, I think it's difficult to be a control freak. It's such a collaborative process. It is absolutely at, at a certain process. point. But I mean, we, talk about just what itches that scratches and and what and, and do you feel do you feel like short story writing is more fulfilling for you because it's only your vision. All the burden rests on you. I think it's more about diversity, variety of sensation. You know, uh, because I think in the end, I'm what I crave is a conversation. Mm. You know, what I crave is a is, is well, I guess it's intimacy. It's not control. It's knowing that uh, it, I'm having a direct conversation. Uh, and with I, an audience, you mean with, with, with an with, audience, with okay. the audience, yes. Yeah. Okay. And 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 that becomes this interesting thing because I absolutely adore the theater and I love. I love being a part of that process anywhere in the process. You know, you can put me anywhere on a stage, backstage, on stage, you know, uh, in the booth, you know, wherever. And I am, I am overjoyed to be a part of that process and to be a part of that community. But I always look at that as familial. You know, it's a, it's a familial process. We are a family and, 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 and these things. But what happens is I then sometimes crave to just be me, you know, uh, how, how am I just me? And and that's where writing short stories came in. It wasn't because I, I I'm absolutely not a control freak in that in that mindset uh, because I don't think of anything as precious. And that's because um, I wrote for a lot of film producers 
And uh, if you want to get, you know, beat down as a writer, write for a bunch of people who are who are looking at a bottom line more than a creative endeavor. And you'll you'll suddenly realize that nothing you write is precious. You know, it's 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 it's, it's really a matter in that realm. Right. It's really a matter of what can sell and what gets them, you know, to the next stage and next level, uh, because it's a lot of high stakes. Uh, and, you know, I, I never work with like huge producers or, or directors. I always work with these like, you know, just at B, if not below B <laughs> level filmmakers. Um, but, you know, it was paychecks and I was very happy to have it. And I was happy to work with these people. I was happy to to create. But that became very, uh, very much an, a, a lesson of, oh, you know, do I have stories to tell myself? Or am I telling stories for other people? Sure. And that's kind of the branching into, because I do, a, you know, I did a lot of theater. A lot of theater that I produced and written was because I had to. I worked for a municipal arts organization, a city art run theater program. And it was like, we don't have money. So we can't get royalties and we can't, you know, we don't have costumes. We can't do these things. I'll just write a show. You know, I'll just write a show and yeah. it'll be just something that we, we get up and we get up because... According to, you know, our, uh, you know, uh, our office procedures, we need to have 11 shows this year and we only have a budget for like four. So the other shows will be, you know, these, you know, I'll take public domain and literary things and I'll turn them into children's shows and we'll, we'll tour them to schools and things like that. So, so for a long time, I'm, I was a writer of necessity uh, and, 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 you know, almost everything I've ever done was what fell into my lap, huh. you know, what came into my path. Um, I never sought out any of this, to be honest. I, I never like thought, well, this is the path. This is where I'm going to go with my life. It was, oh, uh, we need a script or, oh, we need a director. Oh, you know, hey, you love theater. Why, why don't you help us do this? And why don't you help us do that? And all of a sudden I had what passes as a career. You know, <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was piecemealing uh, artistic endeavor after artistic endeavor and very satisfied. You know, I was never like, Oh, I wish I was in Hollywood or, Oh, I wish I was, I was this huge success because success to me is, is weighed in satisfaction. How satisfied am I with any given work? Um, and, uh, my sister also a, um, an arts matron. She, uh, she ran theater companies and, and Mm. worked with every arts organization in town. Uh, she was once asked, what's your favorite show? And her answer was the one I'm working on. Yeah. It's always going to be the one I'm working on. And I was like, what a perfect answer because it, it, it encapsulizes what it is to be a, a working living theater artist. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because it doesn't do us well to dwell yeah. on, yeah. on the, uh, the golden productions, you know, the, the, yeah. the, the, the idea of, the perfect show or the, Oh, I wish I could do this show. It's like, no, get the show done, be working, be on the show and be invested in that show, in the show that you're working on. Um, and that was, you know, such a great way to, to develop because you're not thinking, God, I wish I was doing something more right. X, Y, or right. Z. Yeah. It's like, no, you, you are happy to do the work that is right in front of you. I think I, I think I've delayed the inevitable for long enough. I think we got to establish the timeline and 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 follow your journey from inception. Your dad being career army, 
did you, it seems like you, because since you and your sister both end up in the arts, I imagine that you had a very arts friendly household in some way. So right? this is something that I don't think people know about uh, army brats or, or, or military kids. We are exposed to the the cultures and the environments that that they bring us to. Sure, they, the the DoD kids programs were top notch. At least when I was a kid, um, we lived in Germany uh, for five years, and we went everywhere. You know, we spent so little time in the classroom. We were always out at museums, at castles, at history sites. We went to Dachau when I was seven years old. Wow. And I was like, that's wow. not something that you should do to a kid. But, <laughs> but I mean, it was amazing. It was amazing because it, 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 it enriched us. And if there was any arts to be had, um, the military kind of put it in front of us, you know? And so growing up, we saw a lot of theater, there was always a base, a, a post theater, you know, uh, soldiers getting together and putting on shows for the love of it, you know, yeah. because it's not like they have time, you know, it's not like when you're in the military, you, right. you've got a lot of free time. So it was, it was always amazing. Um, and of course, when I was in high school, I, I, I actually performed at the post theater. I was, you know, I, I did everything I could to be involved. Um, we lived in Italy, living in Italy. It was all about, you know, the Renaissance arts and the amazing architecture. And um, I got to study at the Commedia dell'arte theater. Did you really? Yeah. Wow. In Vicenza, Italy, we, we were stationed in Vicenza. Sure. And that is the home of the Olympic theater, which was the the birthplace of, of Commedia. Yeah. So we got to go on and they had these crazy like pendulum sets that were like full wood that just like swung in and out and wearing masks. And, you know, we were so exposed to art that it, was, it would seem impossible not to have it be a part of our, our lives. It was, it was so um, amazing how dedicated to arts they were. Uh, and then of course, as you're nearing the end of your like high school career, it's all like, well, you know, what are you going to do for a living? Well, I want to be an actor. No, you don't. <laughs> that's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> right. you know, right. uh, sure. All of a sudden, all of those things that they were, they were really promoting seemed far-fetched and dreams and it's like that's weird why is this more of an intangible dream than than becoming a doctor or becoming a lawyer like like chasing down those dreams which are also lofty and difficult right. and hard uh but so is art you know yeah. but in 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 the state of art they're like that's not legitimate you know that's just not a legitimate thing so i joined the army to pay for college did you join uh, right out of high school? Right. Well, yeah, I actually joined early. I was like 17. Wow. And, I wow. yeah. uh, and I graduated at 17. So it was very odd because um, my dad was against it. <laughs> but but he was in Korea at the time. Uh, uh, he was doing a, a hardship tour in Korea. Sure. And he, sure. he was like, I don't think you understand. This is not for you. You know, this is, you know, I, I, I've known you your whole life, son. This yeah. isn't This isn't for you. And he was trying to spare me his experiences because he this is what he wanted my dad yeah you know, there are pictures of him at you know 10 years old in his little army suit and and he always wanted to marry a uh, a japanese bride like that was his childhood dream was to join the army and marry a japanese woman and he married a korean woman so my mom was always like well you you upgraded you know <laughs> <laughs> but uh but it was interesting because that was his dream and he achieved it and it was like this this very yeah you know, uh, interesting, uh, thing because, uh, these were the, 
the, these tangible dreams, these low hanging dreams. And so when I joined the army, I was like, I'm just doing it to go to college. Uh, well, little did just, I know. Who were you though at that point? Would did he see you as a theater kid? What did he? What did he think kid. you should be? Okay, I was a theater kid, and and that was another thing. A lot of people think that you know, my dad was a command sergeant major, and people imagine that um, it was like the great Santini. You know, it, like right. you know, my house was you know dust you know, inspections, and, <laughs> and and my father would come home bellowing, and my dad was a huge teddy bear. You know, he was just, uh, and he was very artistically minded. He, he loved and appreciated art. He was, you know, but he was army through and through. You know, yeah. He was, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. My, my father's resume is literally the, all of the movies of the eighties dealing with Vietnam <laughs> veterans. It was like, you know, oh yeah, that's my unit. Oh yeah, that's my unit. Oh, that's my unit. And then that's, you know, and, and it was just, even um, Platoon was my dad's unit. That's um, hilarious. Wow. And it's just like weird. Uh, so he was through thorough, thoroughly military, but never. But did, did he talk with you about what you should be doing? Was there any? Never. That okay. was another thing is neither of my parents really did, uh, except to say that they were very concerned that I wanted to go into arts. Okay. So much so, uh, you know, my sister, she went into psychology and she mm. was going to become a psychologist, but it was not her heart. She was doing it because she was the good kid. And I was the rebel. I was the kid oh. that was probably going to just end up, you know, doing theater and, you know, living in a van down by the river, the whole nine years. You know, I, I, I was lucky because my sister was a star. You know, everything she did was top notch. So I could I could slide. I, I slid. That was my whole thing. Just slide. Let her do all the hard work. I will do the things I love. Uh, but halfway through my sister's uh, college career, she was like, ah, screw this. I'm going to become an actress. And wow. you know, everybody's world turned upside down. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, do I have to now do something more legitimate? I, I'm worried now uh, that, that you've, you've decided that, that art was, was more in her blood than anything else. But, um, yeah, it, it's interesting because I think my dad, at the very least, he knew – that my brain doesn't doesn't look at things the same way as everyone else. You know that that mm -hmm. that uh, my processing is different than everyone else. Uh, certainly not in military because I'm very very. My father's greatest like military advice is do what you're told. You know, um, and you'll succeed. Right. All you have to do is do right. what you're told. Right. You know, and that is an important thing. And and you know, in, in all seriousness, he was like, listen. You know, it's not about decision making. There's no decision to make. Which is why I, I got very mad, uh, uh, so mad at the recruitment campaign that was called Army of One. Right, right. Because the Army of One campaign seemed to suggest it was about being an individual who makes these decisions and does these things. I'm like, that is a bad sales technique because. It's the opposite. You're part of a group, which is also equally, you know, important to note. Right. That right. you know, there's a reason we're all wearing the same uniform. That's right. the reason why, right. you know, well, we all have the same haircut. There's a reason for that. And to suggest that you're 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 joining the army for individuality and for you know to be this this one person who makes all these decisions to say like, no, someone far far away from you makes decisions. And then it's up to everyone under that person <laughs> to carry those decisions out. Right. So it is just weird. And so, you know, that my, what my dad knew more than anything was, uh, I don't, I don't follow directions. Well, I don't, um, I don't pay attention. Well, I don't, 
you know, I'm not good at that functioning. That's not my, it's my key. <laughs> um, Sorry, I've seen you to say act that way. That's fine. Yeah. There's a place for that. <laughs> oh, there are. Absolutely. There's always a place for it. You know, yeah. Uh, it's, it, and, and of course, at the time, there was no war. There was no threat of war. We weren't in the middle of anything. It was, you know, so it was one of those things where, you know, I had known people who joined the army, went down to Honduras and sat on a beach for a couple of years, right. came home and went to college. And that was, that was this, this thing. It's like, you know, it's just a job. It's like, you know, uh, 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 an after school job and you get it and then you go to college and, and everything will be great. Um, but I, uh, I joined right at uh, Just Cause and uh, at Desert Storm like right like literally my 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 boot camp was cut short so we could participate in just cause and really? you know I, I i got to run around in south america for something called airbridge denial which i can't talk about and then i went over to uh desert storm and it was just like a, a series of like unfortunate timing really when it came down to it uh and all of a sudden uh, as, as i'm coming out of this whole whirlwind thing my sister is deathly ill she had a brain tumor and so, like in the midst of it all, there's like this family crisis brewing yeah, in in, yeah. in in the storms, and it was like this is so so very bizarre, because my life had been a very simple line, <laughs> yeah. and then it was this erratic, you know, ups and downs, and then uh, I immediately was able to get out of the army right then at uh, at the end of Desert Storm. I was just like, I got family, I got to take care of. And they shipped me off and I went home because right after Desert Storm, um, the army was desperate to get rid of excess soldiers because they had taken so many on. And it was really a budgetary crisis at the end of um, that military yeah. action, yeah. Uh, which I, I wish I could say is, is going to happen again. But because we've had such a prolonged military presence in the middle east yeah we've, we've never run into that issue again you know we are always needing soldiers now um whereas after desert storm i think there was this big sigh of relief of right. okay well that's right. over how do we maintain all these troops how do we maintain this sure you know this fighting force when there's no one to fight so um, let, let oh, yeah. me let me i just want to slow down for one second just because I, I don't want to gloss over your time in Sure. Um, cause that does seem like such a 180 degree shift from, from <laughs> yeah, not, not, not just going from, from where you were into the army, but also your expectations of what the army was supposed to be into what actually was, um, did you go in as infantry? I, I went in, uh, as infantry, but my dad actually geared me to communications and okay. he was like, look, uh, and a lot of what a lot of the idiosyncratic things that happened was uh, one was I'm colorblind, which I didn't learn until I joined the army. Yeah, you know, I didn't pass the Whoa. colorblind test, which which Whoa. which created kind of a funnel effect because I was going to go into MOPIC. I was going to go into the um, sort of the journalist arm of, okay. of the military. Yeah, but uh, they uh, being colorblind, they're like, well, you can't, <laughs> you can't, you can't do this, you can't do that. Uh, so uh, I found myself in a obscure communications uh, system that uh, was apparently just stupid dangerous uh, because it, it it involved a giant radio uh, tower. And when you key it, you light up any radar. And so that specific uh, rig 
was oftentimes used to draw enemy fire. You know, it's oftentimes used so that you key it up and then you just run because what you've done is you've told the enemy there's somebody there utilizing what must look like you know a very yeah. sophisticated communications array, but really it's just a giant antenna that puts out stupid amounts of uh, of, of energy to okay. transmit. So, uh, so, oh, so, yes. so what so what I'm I'm trying to get clearance. So this seems like it's right out of stripes. They cut your basic short for you to go into just cause. I mean, did you? Yes. So no AIT. You hadn't done any MOS specific. Oh no no training. no. Uh, it, it, that was all my truncation. The, the oh, whole okay. truncation okay. was was basic AIT. Okay, out. got you. Know, you. It's like right. there's something brewing. There's something going. Let's get let, let's let's move. Let's move. Let's move. Let's move. Which is another thing is we were trained again in like 1940s radio tech. Right. Um, you know, we were in these rat rigs and I was like, why are we using these things? It's like, because it's the easiest, quickest thing to get you from training to deployed. Got you. And so were, were you with 82nd? Is that who you got assigned to? So no, uh, okay. we were out of Fort Belvoir and there was oh, not okay. a, uh, it's not a, a proper, yep. um, <laughs> yeah, I ended up in first infantry. I'll just say that. Yep, I got you. <laughs> like, I got you. Yep. Like in in the in the in the long term, because it was like I said, it was a it was a it was a sieve effect. Yeah. Where would I fall after all of these things? And you know, it probably didn't hurt the paperwork to see that my father was a Green Beret. Yeah. You know, one hundred first Airborne, and and his and his record because um, there was an interesting thing about my unit and we were all the children of highly decorated Vietnam veterans. You know, we were all same, same rough age, same rough, you know, um, even our, our, our ethnicities were, were very similar and which raised a lot of questions. Really? Um, wow. and this is not a conversation I'm supposed to have anyway. So I got you. Yeah. yeah I got you. <laughs> just, just, got you. just for yeah, the, yeah. the, the iteration of it was we think that we were probably uh, just second generation, you know, we grew up in the military, you know, we grew up yeah. around the military and, and that felt like we had special privilege, but I, I know we didn't, but it certainly felt like people were quicker to say, well, they know what the army is versus people who just came off the street and, and had no concept of the army, yeah. um, which is always weird to me to think that there's a, a large civilian populace that has no idea yeah. That the army is a forever thing, a daily thing, a daily activity thing. A uh, you know that you know when we're not at war, it's still running it's still and it's still, yeah, yeah, still has this huge force of people who live out their lives professionally and do all these professional things. They go to the motor pool every day, who you know do yeah. all these things um, because it's not something that you imagine unless you're thinking of war, right? And so you know uh, to take a bunch of people who don't know what the military is, and then to find that you know a very small contingent of people all with the very same, you know, right down to like the same um, uh, military backgrounds of our parents in the same unit felt pointed. Yeah. So uh, this is beyond interesting, especially considering where your career ends up going, but how were you processing all this? How were you processing suddenly being in, a combat zone when Americans hadn't been in combat. Well, I guess since Grenada, but properly yeah. since Vietnam. I mean, how, how were you processing all this? Were you? Was there an asshole puckering? Holy shit! Uh, I'm, this is this just got real. Were you excited? Were you kind of shrugging your shoulders at it? How did so, you feel about all of it? 
that's I always say that the army does this amazing thing in in the training and in the indoctrination period of it that uh, really helps create a sensation of purpose. Mm-hmm. And so aside from fear, which I think is a, a, a natural aspect, there was definitely excitement. Um, and it was a, an excitement that seemed to stem from the ability to fulfill a purpose, the purpose that was assigned to me and guaranteed to me, you know, a purpose that was, you know, uh, heretofore unexplored. Um, and, and you lose a lot of that private sensibility, the, the private citizen sensibility. Mm-hmm. You, you are like, um, everything made sense, which was weird because it didn't, but it did, you know, uh, I always try to liken this, like imagine trying to train someone for chaos trying to tell somebody that they're about to go into absolute chaos. And one of the ways you do that is by creating such huge mandates on mundane, you know, behavior. The more mundane your routine is, the more adept to chaos you are. And it seems counterindicative, but it's true. If polishing your boots becomes a part of your existence, then people shooting at you at some point becomes just this thing that you were prepping for. You can make you order know, out of chaos. You can you make think? order out of chaos because yeah. you have you have come down to the very minute details of your life. Yep. And that means if I need to, and this it's funny, uh, for years after I got out of the army, I still polished my combat boots. I would still sit and just polish in the in in the evening sometime, and it would it would it, it would dissolve some anxieties and some huh. angsty moments, just because that act was fulfilling a purpose. <laughs> you know, it was it was hearkening to an idea that there was purpose at one time. There's a purpose to shine your boots, uh, which seems ludicrous while it's happening. Which seems ludicrous when you talk about it, but then one day when you're feeling like you're not present or you're not able to you know uh, make sense of something just that simple act of polishing your boots made me feel at the very least like i was uh, that I, I i found a line to normal you know a line yeah. to normalcy yeah and it, it's uh, and i have terrible adhd on top of everything else which wasn't really a thing right. uh, you know right. uh, at that time uh, so I was very bad at task management, especially out of the army when there wasn't someone yelling at me. Right. Because another thing about the army is if you have ADHD or ADHD, having someone tell you what time to wake up, what time to do things, how how clean something was supposed to be, you know, uh, regimenting all those things, and you just have to agree to it. You know, again, don't think, do, Uh, which again might might have informed my writing style. Don't think, do. Don't think. Just, you know, commit to the task at hand. Um, and so you weren't finding that this kind of, let's not, maybe maybe anti-authoritarian is too strong a term, but um, the inability to listen, all the things your dad was worried about. Right. That doesn't seem like it was necessarily that much of a factor. when it, Well, were- unfortunately, there are points at which that type of outward behavior can become useful strategically. 
Sure. You know, it, sure. It, it makes a lot of sense to have people who can be kind of uh, out of the mold if you need them to be. But in the end, I think what my father was really concerned with was my inability to conform. But in combat situation, conformity is not always the the priority. Right. You know, and, and, and so it comes back to that, do what you're told, you know, as long as you do what you're told, it will come to pass, you know, you'll get through the night if you do what you're told kind of situation. So it uh, it sounds to me like there's a, so I'm, I'm, I know we're talking around the edges a little bit and I think that's probably smart. Um, but I want to make sure I'm clear on this, uh, it seems like there's the disconnect between the strategic, you're doing what you're told, but tactically, you're having to make a lot of independent decisions. That's right? it. Yeah, That's absolutely it. So, you know, uh, Because like I was saying with the Army of One situation, it's we, if you keep the task at hand and complete it, because that's what you're told, where you're told is to do this thing, the confines of which is about, because it's all go or no go, it's all pass yeah. or fail. Yeah. Oh, and 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 once you can accept that, and sometimes you have to do that throughout life is is decide whether something's go or no go, whether whether it's a um, whether the tax gets achieved or not. Not I'll I'll chip away at it. I'll yeah. you know yeah. I'll 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 halfway get there. I'll I'll do my best. It's like no, if you fail, you fail, and then you have to do something else you know, and you have yeah, to, because yeah. you see a lot of people who spend their lives kind of spinning their wheels on the notion that they're going to get to something. And it's like, you should have taken this as a pass or fail situation that go or no go situation because you're wasting valuable time attempting something that either your heart's not in or your skills aren't up to. Yeah, And, 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 you know, for people who've been in the military, if your skills are not up to it, you fail. Right. And then you have to address the failure, not the continued attempt. Right. You know, right. Uh, that become that's such an, uh, an important thing that I think people need to learn is that the continued attempt of something you're failing at is not the correct action. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, right. it may involve going back to training. It may involve augmenting the training but you have to accept that the task is done and gone yeah. you've missed that window and you need to reassess and 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 reapproach and do even if it's the same task it has to be a new venture of the task you know it has yeah. to be a new attempt at it not the continued attempt and I, I you know it's it's fascinating to think that those are the kinds of lessons that you learn yeah is that you know um it makes you a more pragmatic artist, does it not? Absolutely, because yeah. art is, is very rarely pragmatic. Right. But but to be able to, again, the let go motion. Yeah. Uh, lots of artists are so precious about their creations that they can't fathom the moment that they put it into somebody else's hands, or they can't fathom the moment that a reviewer says, "I didn't like it." You know, <laughs> they can't they can't take it. And a part of that is because they they refuse to uh, to see the to to see where that assignment ended, where that task ended, where the check mark was. Yeah. Like, when, when did you pass? When did you fail? I always say, 
the moment I'm I, I I'm done writing, like the moment the, the script is done, that's the task. I did it. Yeah, the, the script yeah. is done. Yeah, I I will not treat this script with any more regard than the body of work that it is. That way, I can hand it to someone else, or I can put it out there in the world. And I won't have to be defensive about it. I won't have to, you know, argue about it. It doesn't. It, my job was playwright, play written. Yep. There yep. you go. Poet, poetry written. You know, right. poem. Right. That way, the relationship is complete for me. I find my satisfaction. My satisfaction isn't a paycheck. My satisfaction isn't somebody else loving it. I've had it. You know, none of that plays into my function as a writer. Um, well, but I think, oh, yes, sorry. Go, no, no, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was go just going to say, I, I, I think that, um, that art kind of has to end somewhere because you can always work. You could always yeah. tinker. You could always, you know, I, I, somebody once asked me, when are you, when, when do you know a script is done? And I'm like, well, it, it's done when you can let someone else look at it. You know, so you can let somebody else yeah. have it. Yeah. Because I, honestly, I could write and rewrite and keep writing and keep tinkering and keep hammering and and get my way or uh, you know, wherever. Well, there's an adult indulgence as well, right? I think yes. that's one of the things that's come to my mind is I'm thinking the difference in the pipelines between people that are steeped in art and never get out of that pipeline and those coming from uh, you know the military, which these are not equally prolific groups of people that go to the arts let's be clear but but i do it, i i i can see that if you're coming up through school grad school as an artist you become so precious about your work there is so much that sunken costs and sunken emotional you know ripping away the artifice to get to the emotional truth type thing that you are trained to be precious about your work, whereas coming from the military where nobody gives a fuck about what you're thinking, you're just so grateful that anybody wants to hear anything you've put on paper, whether or not it's the soul-piercing truth or whether it's just like, hey, I whipped this up this morning in my underwear, whatever. You're just glad to get your voice out in any way, shape, or form, and it does make you much more low-maintenance and much more, I think, effective in a lot of respects as an artist. Oh, absolutely. And it, it's all about you know, executing orders, you know, being sure that, because one thing I love about veteran arts organizations and, and veteran artists is that nine times out of 10, they have something specific to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because they have an experience that is very narrow in public experience yeah. like yeah. not many people know this and and thereby not many people have the the ability to look at any situation with the same kind of lens yeah and so to have people take a picture with that you know with that lens and present it you oftentimes will see and and usually again and again thematically you see what they're really saying is uh, a pretty uh, damning uh, uh, notion of the artifice of our daily life. You know, it's like people behave as if life and death things are going on all the time. For sure. You know, sure. Uh, people in offices are, 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 you know, struggling with the stress of, yeah. of getting yeah. reports in on time and doing this on time and yeah. doing these things. 
And it's like, I don't think you know that there is uh, huge populations of the planet whose life and death struggles yeah. are life and death. Uh, that their decisions are weighed, their successes are weighed by how many people are harmed or how many people are not harmed. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think veterans have a keen observation on that notion of how artificial our uh our self-importance yeah ideas what's interesting i while you were saying that i was thinking i don't know anyone and i'm not saying i know everyone but i don't know any veteran artist that is struggling to figure out what to say Right, they struggle with a lot of things, but yes. not as far as what to say, and yes. that, and so there's a, that that clarity of purpose, and then satisfaction that even if you haven't put it out a hundred percent exactly in a soul piercing way, it's you, you've been able to say something, and you'll probably tackle that same subject matter the rest of your life. Absolutely, tackle in all these different mediums, so you're gonna get a lot of bites of that apple in one way or another. And I think that's a really that's a really interesting and insightful. Uh, point that you're making. I want to ask about your your military career. Sure. Were you satisfied? Were you happy with it? Did oh God, you, no. <laughs> what was your? What, I, what, if well, you had to sum it up, what what would you say? Was it disappointing? Was it depressing? So, what do you think? In so many ways, I, my dad was right. It, it it wasn't me, you know. And and what really happened more than anything else was it took me a it, it took a I was only in for three years. You know, I just did, you know, the very basic two combat deployments in three years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. in that time, uh, and because of that, I had about a 10 year window of not being the person I wanted to be, you know, of, of taking, it, it was a decision that put me on a path of not being who I wanted to be. And it lasted, and you know, ten years before I started on a path, another ten years before I felt like I was living up to a potential that I had when I was seventeen. You know, it it, it was such a bizarre time uh, because coming back to the civilian world, lots of things seemed trivial. I stopped the pursuit of what I wanted to do and just became obsessed with not doing anything I didn't want to do. They're not the same thing. Avoiding something is not the same as going towards something. And I spent so long just avoiding being uncomfortable, <laughs> being pressed upon, being put in situations that I had no control over or no uh, no say in. Uh, I found myself consistently saying, I will never take a job that I dreaded going to, you know, um, and I became a puppeteer. That was, that was cool. Uh, so I was a puppeteer, which was a job that I loved doing. And it was a great job, but it was one of those weird things where I was doing it almost solely to avoid sitting in a cubicle or doing some grueling work that didn't fulfill me. Uh, I, I found myself drawn away from anything that seemed like structure. Um, 
Wow. And I piecemealed a, a career, you know, like I said, you know, I, I was doing shows and I was doing things like that. But for the longest time, it was more out of avoidance than it was out of embracing. You know, I found myself avoiding structure instead of embracing the art. Considering, so, well, considering oh, yes. the path that it ended up taking you down, how did that hurt you, though? What would you have done had you been completely, let's call it self-realized in those moments? Like, are, are you like, so, oh, I really missed some opportunities? <laughs> I, I miss many opportunities uh, because yeah. I, I wallowed. I would have wallowed less. That would be my my, uh, my one wish because it's all me. It's not anything else. It was it was me kind of wallowing, you know. I, uh, but what I would have done differently was I would have pursued connection. Uh, very much what I'm doing here right now, uh, sending things out. You know, I I don't enter contests. I don't you know, send things off. I, you know, um, yeah. it was by sheer happenstance that uh, your contest came across my purview. Uh, and it was one of those things where I don't, I don't spend any time thinking I'm a veteran. Uh, yeah. But at that moment, I was like, oh, you know what? I'm a veteran. Oh, I'm, a veteran. <laughs> I'm a playwright. I have some plays. And uh, like I said, I, I, I even have like a play roughly construed around some of my military experience. And I have a play that is, that is far more dreary and dark. Uh, and I was thinking of those plays and I was like, I don't want to be the veteran who cashes in on being a veteran. Sure. You know, I don't, I, sure. I, I, I don't know that that's, that's in my, at least not here and now, and, and certainly, you know, wanting to present myself as a writer. And I was like, you know, I have kind of a family comedy. And I'm proud of it. I'm proud of of, of that that play because it's it, it's a lighthearted thing, you know. Yeah. Ultimately, yeah. Uh, and I find that um, artists oftentimes are drawn to to take the the very pointed parts of their observations and kind of shove them into other people's eyes. Right. Right. So I, I was like, and I have plenty of those that I can you know whip out at any time. But I felt that maybe. I should tread the waters of connection by showing that I'm not, you know, uh, that I don't have a point, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm not yeah. trying to, that I'm not trying to, to make a point. Right. Uh, and then, you know, that really does m make a difference. Cause I, I, I keep thinking if I went back, cause like I, I used the GI Bill to go to college, but it was a very low key experience. And um, and my sister, she had a brain tumor, and so when they took the brain tumor out, she was epileptic. So I was basically oh, her driver. Yeah. Wow. And so you know she couldn't drive anywhere, uh, couldn't go anywhere. So um, I spent a lot of that quick out, out of the army time, kind of, uh, and I won't say take care of her because she's fierce. She <laughs> she's a fierce woman. But you know, being there, and uh, and and I just fell into patterns of of life uh, that you know um, were unhealthy too. I, I would eat better. <laughs> That's what I would do. Oh, interesting. <laughs> you know, yeah, I would yeah, treat yeah. my body better uh, because I, that was another thing. As like I was, like, I will never run again. <laughs> you can never make me run again. Nothing. <laughs> you know, you can you can release a bear, and I'll just let it eat me because I will never run again. Uh, but now looking back, I was like, no, nah, I could have run. <laughs> so when you started, so you went to college and was your degree in theater? Was it in the arts? So, what were you trying so to do? interestingly enough, uh, I went to Armstrong, which is here in Savannah. 
And it was it was a placeholder. I was actually wanting to go to film school. Okay. Um, but my sister not being able to move about much, and my father was uh, still – actually, he was in Saudi Arabia at the time. Um, we So just staying close by, I was just taking classes, filling out. And so I, I went into the theater program, and I went into uh, – I majored in philosophy. Um, the dean – calls me into his office and he's like, we don't actually have a philosophy major um, and we don't actually have a theater major. So we're going to give you a communications degree. And I was like, and it wasn't nearly as much as a surprise because the whole time I was at college, they were like, next year we're going to instill this, you know, bachelor of science in philosophy or bachelor of science in, or bachelor of arts in, in theater. Don't worry. It's coming. And so I kept going, you know, year after year. They're like, don't worry, next year, next year, next year, senior year. They're like, we didn't get it, but we can give you a communications degree. Oh my! Lord. And I was like, great. And it was like, it'll say emphasis in theater and philosophy. I was like, great. I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm so, I'm so glad that, but, that the emphasis of my communication skills will be philosophy <laughs> and theater. <laughs> What, but what did you think? I mean, you're going into a line of work, though, or you're aiming for a line of work where a uh, degree isn't necessarily crucial, right? No. I mean, or no, what did you th or was it just that, hey, I missed out a chance to actually learn skills and to actually. No, actually, it was um, my sister was going to college and I was driving her every day and I had the GI Bill. <laughs> OK, OK. That was literally it. That was literally my my thinking was, well, if, if somebody's going to pay for it, I might as well go. Yeah. So then where, what did you think? I mean, clearly going for a film degree, you were trying to get into film. Like you thought that was the yes. career path. Right? Yes. Yeah. And uh, I, I am in film now. I make short films. I just made a feature like this past summer. Um, we are talking about shooting a series this coming year. So um, so film has always stayed. In, and, and I've written screenplays for numerous production companies. Right. Throughout the years, so but, but let's talk about that. So, I mean, did you leave Savannah to do this, or nope. was this all Savannah based? Wow. It was all well. And That's what awesome. was interesting was like how I got into screenwriting was I had a friend who was an extra. And I even say extra. I just a background character, and even that is a, a stretch. But he was he was background on Star Trek: The Next Generation, the television, okay. and he was desperate to break into acting. He was desperate. He was like, I'm on a, a, you know, a top syndicated show. I'm, you know, and so he was very excited about it. So he would pay me to write small story arcs for his character, uh, who was just this background guy in the, in the Star Trek show. So he would pay me and he would take these papers to the writing room. And of course, nothing would ever come of it. But that relationship that I have with him kind of stuck because when he he was a wheeler dealer uh it turns out he was a terrible actor uh but he was always trying to get things done so he would mm -hmm. talk to people he talked to a producer he's like i got a friend he's a writer he's incredible right so he's like my hype man Jeez. and then he'd be like oh hey i told that guy that you had a script about you know uh, a, a man who who shot the president and he's he's, he's in hiding I, was like, I don't have a script like that oh well they want it by monday no, just type fuck. one up uh, so, so that was kind of my career was started by producers who really wanted scripts in short times. I became a ghostwriter where uh, several of my scripts have made it into 
um, production under somebody else's name. And then I became script doctor, which I would just kind of punch up scripts. And, and that became a long relationship with, with, you know, two or three different companies. Um, oh, and then were I they all, were with, they all local companies though? No, because no, these were all, they're uh, in LA or they're, were they? well, one was in LA, um, two were in Germany. Oh, wow. And so okay. I worked with, uh, I worked with this guy, Uli Lamel. Um, and he, you know, fly me out to Germany and I'd work with him and we, we, we banter and his sweetest guy, I was sitting in his, his apartment, this little apartment in Germany, Munich. And, uh, we're just talking and I, I look over and there's a, a stack of Polaroids on the end table. And I'm like, oh, so I pick up the Polaroids, it's a stack of Polaroids and it's, uh, pictures of Andy Warhol and Muhammad Ali and Andy Warhol taking pictures of Muhammad Ali. And I'm like, what is this? And so I'm like, what's this? And he's like, oh, that's Andy. You know, I, I used to work for Andy and we were such good friends. And we were, it turns out that he was one of Andy Warhol's music. Factory people. Uh, and he was a factory person. And he he did a lot of Andy Warhol's filming. Um, and so he he like points to the back of the couch. And I look back there and there are like 20 original Andy Warhol uh, pieces of art behind the couch, just shoved behind the couch. He's like, I'm going to open a museum one day. And I'm like, Oh my God, what? But yeah. Yeah. Uh, fascinating guy. Sweet as can be bizarre, but, but yeah. How were you, but how were you meeting these guys? Was it all through that one point of contact that was a wheeler dealer or how did that? Cause I mean, I I think a lot of people are going to be here uh, listening to this going, wait, how the fuck can I get into the business? So this is the beauty of, of, of my life. Like I said, I don't pursue things. They just kind of fall into my path. And the way that those two Germans fell into my path, one German, his name was Rudiger, was making a film uh, in Savannah. And so he was going to make this film in Savannah. They called me out to audition, to act in it. And I was like, okay. In my audition, Rudiger takes a huge like to me. Oh, this is worth mentioning, bizarre enough. I am a six foot four, uh, very wide Asian man. Um, German producers really like to have very large men around them. You know, they just want somebody huge next to them. Uh, and I, I, that probably sounds really racist or something, but it's just something that I've noted that, that the European bloc nations, I've worked for a lot of them. And I, I swear, the only thing I've got going is that I'm huge. You know, is that I'm a big man. I can't because they take to me quickly. They don't really know. The guy, Rudiger, from my audition was like, I want you to write my script. And I'm like, I didn't even tell you I was a writer. You know, I didn't even, I didn't even mention that. Jesus. And so, you know, wow. he flies me out to Munich and we we, we go. And anyway, Uli uh, apparently is a big celebrity in Germany. Uh, and so Rudiger was like trying to get Uli involved in this movie to help up the uh the value of it and so uli came on as a producer and that's how i met uli so i i can but all I can my hear, all my stories are like that well well i mean i can hear just forehead smacking against walls out there as people <laughs> listen to this and go son of a bitch that's fucking ridiculous. there's no way i can duplicate that um yeah no, I, but I, I that was the thing connection yeah it's about connection. connecting yeah Go out and talk to people. Go out to talk to, go to your local theaters, go to your local, every city has filmmakers of any level of success. Meet them, talk well, to them. And, and that's them what, what seem, you do. It, it seems like to me, I mean, 
it's been a benefit for you to be in Savannah, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it's so bizarre because I, I I imagined that I would be here for a couple of years, you know, until my sister leveled out and, and then I'll, choo, I was going to be gone. Yeah. But uh, the thing about Savannah is it's so easy to live here. You know, it's it, low cost of living, high art potential, and they let you fail in Savannah without rubbing your face in it. You know, you can you can attempt things and if it doesn't work out, no one's like holding it over your head. So, you know, that that put me because I've owned, gosh, five theater companies in the Jeez. last 20 plus years. Um, the last two, uh, the my improv comedy team, we 10 years of, of running uh, ended with the pandemic, really. We just had to give up our space. Um, and then Savannah Shakes, which is a Shakespeare company that we we produced uh, 10 shows before the pandemic shut us down. <laughs> uh, but we're oh. probably going to come back to both of those uh, in the coming year. Uh, and that kind of is the thing. You can try things here. And that is huge. You and know? the audience is there for it. There's enough of an audience that they'll there show an up audience. and appreciate it. Yeah. There is an audience for it. They do appreciate it. Um, and what's interesting is it's it's kind of a small, knit, very dedicated audience. So like there are five, four or five theater companies in 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 Savannah, only one professional, uh, one equity house. But the the rest of them are, you know, very uh, heartfelt community theaters. Uh, they all um, buy with the same audience. So you kind of have to stagger your seats <laughs> to make sure that you're not producing on the same weekend as wow. everybody else. Wow. Interesting. So how did improv come about for you? And I'm saying this is somebody that just loved improv and even... I don't know, over the last 20 years, I still somehow managed to make time for improv. I just, I, I've always loved it as an inherently creative art form that actors never amazing. get to do. You never get to be inherently creative. You're always interpreting somebody's work, right? Right. And, yeah. and I th- I'll, I'll, I'll tell you my own thing only because I've never said it on the show and I'll bore you with this and then I'll, I'll get out of the way. But I saw the, the seminal moment for me was in 2004 at Improv Olympic in LA when I saw, um, Scott Adsit from 30 Rock and Dave Pasquese do, uh, they did um, Adsit and Pasquese, they were called. And they just went up on stage and they did an hour long, long form show um, with no suggestion. They just walked out on stage and they said, this is, we're making all this up. And then they just started creating. And I will never forget that first scene where Dave Pasquese was just standing there alone on stage. Scott Adsit just walked right off stage and Dave Pasquese just stood there staring out into space and organically over the next eight or so minutes, you started to realize he was in an art gallery looking at a painting and Scott adds it then kind of peeks his way in and becomes like the very fussy, um, you know, whatever uh, uh, security or whatever, right. trying to keep him from, docent, from yeah. the painting or docent or something. Yeah. And, and it becomes this, and, it, and it, but I was blown away because I was so used to the fast, you know, quick improv, right. and like improv right, right, games right. and all that. And I was like, oh my God, this organic, very theatrical way of taking it slow. After that, I was like, I had already been doing improv for off and on for like five years. I, I loved it, but that blew me away. And I was like, I will never shake that. And it's funny because tomorrow night, I'm actually going to go see Dave Pasquese in the New York uh, with uh, uh, TJ, um, God fucks his name. I always forget his last name. Anyway, but it's been uh, he does the same thing with uh, 
this other guy and they're fucking great. And I, last time I saw them was a decade ago. So it's just kind of ironic that they are actually, I'm actually going to go see them tomorrow. But so that's been my improv journey. So I'm a huge improv fan. Yeah. That doesn't just fall into your lap. How did you, how did that all happen? I mean, what, <laughs> well, so what did that look like for you? I've always been, like I said, a fan of improv, uh, you know, introduced to it like in high school in acting, utilizing it as, you know, the, um, a way to break into character and to, to manipulate, you know, and, and, and it, of course it was like Uta Hagen and spoiling, and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, serious tools for the actor. Um, so, uh, when I got out of the army, um, there was, you know, whose line is in anyway, yep. the yep. know, radio broadcast and the British, um, show was kind of rising in popularity and it was, it was all yeah. around. And, um, and Clive Anderson version, not the, not the, the Clive Anderson version. version. Yes. Yeah, not yeah, the yeah, Drew, yeah. Drew right, right. So we found ourselves, you know, uh, just kind of, uh, toying with it and we, we played with it a few times, but, uh, what really happened was the local acting pool pretty tight. And we found ourselves, um, after my child was born, not having a lot of time to devote to shows because shows, you know, in the community theater sitting, you're after work, you show up. And it's like a five to six week period of rehearsing every night uh, because you don't have like eight hour days to, sure, to do anything. Sure. Um, and we just realized that we weren't going to be able to uh, to be a part of shows as much. And I was like, well, well, what if we did improv? What if we did shows that didn't require all that prep time? You know, <laughs> we, we, we would get our, our, you know, acting hit because we're obviously addicted to it. Um, I love the, the pragmatism. All this is right, true. Pragmatism. Pragmatism, it was yeah. literally, we need to, to have something that doesn't require weeks and weeks of our time. Uh, we'll just meet every, and we, and we started just doing it on Monday nights because it was the, the dark night of theaters um and so monday night being dark perfect night to do and it was it was more like a get together it was more like hey let's hang out let's do this and 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 for our own satisfaction um and it slowly snowballed into something that had an audience and a fan base and and ultimately we ended up getting our own theater over a coffee shop and you know just it it, everything happened organically you know and and it was it was mostly because we loved each other's company yeah. And because we enjoyed the the performance aspect of it. And so we find ourselves, you know, uh, technically it's uh, it was uh, it started in 2009. Oh, we called ourselves the Literary Improv League, where we would basically improv our way through famous books. So like Moby Dick and Treasure Island and Great Gatsby, we would uh-huh. sort of do a Reader's Digest version on the stage with, you know, improv games like kind of stuck in there here and there. And then we're like, you know, it's getting too hard because everybody wanted to research the book. So it became like a book club more than an improv troupe. And it was like, let's just do improv every Monday. And so we we, we were doing improv every Monday for, for a good long time. Um, well, I mean, then, ten, 10 years, right? 10, ten years. years. Well, uh, as we, when we got our own space, we started doing, um, we started off with five shows a week and then we kind Jesus. of brought it down to three shows a week. Um, and then we ran that three shows a week for a while, but yeah, 10 years of, of, you know, a self-sufficient, yeah, you know, improv company. What, who did you find yourself aligning with? Is it a professional theater community that you're all, like, cause I'm trying to think of what is the motivating factor, you know, in this, in New York, LA, Everybody's trying to make it, so everybody's down for the cause. What yeah, drives but, people in in a smaller town? Are they so are they in a smaller town? No, 
Okay. <laughs> it's yeah. not it's not the career, it's the fulfillment. Okay. It is, you know, and people give their all. You know, it is amazing to see the kinds of productions mm-hmm. that go on here because people are putting it all on the lines. And these are people, again, who are doing their nine to five job and then, you know, coming out afterwards. And we do have uh, one equity house here, Savannah Rep, which brings down actors from New York and 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 does a really tight rehearsal schedule and and hires enough locals so that locals are standing shoulder to shoulder with you know professionals right. and right. and that and that creates this amazing camaraderie and, and you know an excitement for the audience as well sure um, but in the end i think it is because we understand and for anybody who's out there in, in in a city or a town that doesn't have a thriving theater scene or or you feel like it's impossible, um, know that ultimately, no matter where anyone lives, theater is both a voice and a place for listening. If there isn't a theater in your town, make one. Go to a coffee shop, do a two-person show find a space because the truth of the matter is it's not is there an audience it's how do i reach them mm. and the first step of that is giving them something to go to because there is no place on earth that doesn't benefit from theater there is no condition that is um exclusive you know, everything is represented in theater. And and always keep that in mind, too, because even if you can't uh, find the play to do, sit down and write it. You know, <laughs> sit yeah. down and, yeah. and make it. Yeah. Um, the only thing that can happen is it doesn't work out. I mean, the worst thing that can happen is it doesn't work out. I mean, you're not going to go to jail. You're not going to kill over dead. Right. Right. Uh, but the best thing that can happen is you start a revolution. You, you, you bring people about who maybe some of them didn't even know, you know, that theater was essential, but theater is essential. Art is essential. And too many communities forget that. And the way they forget that is it's not around. So that's my, my, my take is it's not about finding a cause or, or championing a cause it's about knowing that the human condition is stale without art and theater is one of the most tangible living arts available. So the glib, the glib retort, I think to that, that I hear in my own head, but it sometimes is, is verbalized by people in one way, shape or form is bitching. Art is awesome. That's why God invented Hulu. And I can sit there in my underwear and, and I, so up here, um, in Cornwall, you know, we've started, uh, you know, we're based out of, we have our parlor space that happened basically because we rented too much space and we were like, yeah, let's just start doing some shows here and all that. And it's worked <laughs> out and it's great because there's no professional theater in the whole County, right. but we are about an hour out of outside the city. So it's easy for us to cast, you know, professional actors, bring them up here. We put them in this 16 seat, you know, parlor and it's a blast and we do it every Saturday night and they're established plays, but it's really just us having a good time. But it is definitely a learning curve um, to get people to come out. And again, these are people that are within the radius of New York City. But even then, the inertia that 
pushes back against live performance and getting your butt in a seat is sometimes significant. And there are a lot of guys I know, a lot of guys, a lot of vets that are like, yeah, dude, I'm not going to theater. Uh, theater is not my thing. And I'm like, it's a medium. Like, it depends what you're seeing. Like, I get it. Um, you know, I'm not the kind of person that's going to rush out and see kinky boots. Just not my thing. And if that's what you're thinking that all theater has to be like, then got it. I, I see why that might turn you off, but it's a medium. Sylvia Plath was not the only poet. And now you have a veteran poetry community that's like exploding because veterans are going, shit, there's a really cool art form. Like, it's the same thing with theater. You can write anything in there, but the act of getting into a physical space and sitting and watching a show is a bit of a, a, a hill. It doesn't seem like you've had to climb that mountain as much, though, in your I, neck I, of the woods. Yeah. Uh, we, 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 pl- we played to audiences of five. You know, we, okay. we, yeah, yeah, <laughs> we yeah. definitely had those moments. And, and ultimately, I mean, we have a standing rule that um, the, the audience has to outnumber the cast in order for us to go on. You know, we, we, so we've, we, we've had that. So we, we definitely go through lean times. Um, yeah. Like I said, the worst thing that happens is you fail. Right. And that becomes right. like this, this thing where people actually think that that is the worst thing that can happen to them at all. Right, right. And you're like, no, 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 no. You're, you're misreading what I'm saying. When I say the worst thing that happens is you fail, failing is nothing. Failing is fine. There's nothing wrong with failure. We've been conditioned to think that failure means death. Yeah, yeah. And it's just not true, you know. And yeah, you you get out and you put yourself out of the line. And I'm not saying theater is easy by any stretch of the right, imagination. Right, right. And I'm not saying standing in front of people and and saying lines is easy. But what I am saying is it is essential. Yeah. Yeah. And it is only by presenting it that it ever will get anywhere. Yeah. So be prepared to fall on your face. Be prepared to look like a fool. You know, um, you, you can't be afraid of looking like a fool. That's uh, acting 101, improv 101. Yeah. Yeah. The sure. only true way to look like a fool is by fearing looking like a fool. You know, if you don't if you don't invest fully in the action, you suddenly look foolish. Mm-hmm. But if you do a foolish thing, one hundred percent, people are like, "You should be paid to do that." You know. Well, I think that's that is that's a big. Um, I think there's a couple of differences too. Uh, I think when we're paying people, then as a pr- good producer, it's putting that producer hat on and going what's going to your know, ROI does become a thing. And is this really oh, yes. the best use of resources? But you know, I mean, look, we've, I mean, we've been blessed. We didn't set the bar very high because it's a whopping 16 seats in the house and it's always sold out. We we knew what we were doing. We were like, we're setting ourselves up for success here, but I, I will not forget July 4th weekend when it was a Saturday, it was July 2nd. We had 16 seats sold, but because it's pay what you can tickets, only four people showed up. And I was like, oh, okay, we're not doing that again. So it's interesting. So you do learn those lessons, but yeah, it is. Um, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's uh, it is crucial, and it is important for people to be out there, and it's important for people to see the benefit of live performance. That is incredibly important, I think. So, yeah. um, listen, dude, I have taken up a bunch of your time, Chris. <laughs> tell everybody where they can find you, how they can follow you, what they should do to just kind of keep tabs on you, your work, and if they're in Savannah, God forbid, they can see a show. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right? Uh, so uh, my improv company is called Odd Lot Improv. Um, you can find us right now on Facebook. We actually 
decommissioned our website, but we're we're kicking it back up. So look for Odd Lot Improv. Uh, we are um, we're looking at reestablishing Savannah Shakes next year. So Savannah Shakes, uh, which is a Shakespeare company. Um, I have a podcast called The Most Haunted City on Earth, where I talk about ghosts because I'm a huge ghost enthusiast. Badass. And um, let's see, uh, you can find me by looking looking me up, uh, Christopher Susi S O U C Y, and you'll 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 see my name around. I I I'd be bop about. You're on Instagram, right? I am. I'm Susie Writer on Instagram, but I'm also Susie Man, Susie Man or Susie Writer. Yeah. Both of them. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Dude, uh, this is a blast. Let's um to be continued. I I can't wait to talk again um on or offline um about any number of things. But this was really fun, man. I yeah, really absolutely. enjoyed the shit out of this. And um let's talk soon. Yeah. My pleasure. That was Christopher Susie's profile in Havoc. I really enjoy doing these piggybacked episodes with Savage Wonder when we're able to have a veteran artist on. I think it scratches itches both in the military community and in the arts community. But you guys let me know. If, if you don't like that stuff, by all means, reach out and say something. Um, but I do like doing them. I think it's interesting. And I think going into the holidays, hopefully when you're sitting around the fireplace, sipping on eggnog, gives you a little something to think about, how to, how to express your experiences, how to process your experiences. Um, and talking to somebody like Chris that has so many tools and has thought so much about writing and artistic expression, um, maybe it gives you some inspiration to start doing your own writing. Just a thought. Okay, next week, as I said, we will be doing the Profiles and Havoc year-end episode with the owner, Charlie Faint, Lisa Suderman, who runs tons of stuff for Havoc Journal, including the Instagram page. Uh, Mike Warnock, the editor-in-chief, and myself. So that'll be a really fun episode uh, for you guys to hear when and where you get the chance, because I know it's the holidays. And on that note, with it being the holidays, with us coming down the final week of the year, before we hit Christmas and New Year's, um, I wanted to take just a second and talk about a couple of things that have kind of crossed my plate here in the holiday season. And um, yeah, just do a little commentary on it. And I'm strategically doing this at the end of this episode. So if your fun card has been punched, bow out. It's okay. You will not hurt my feelings. But for those that um, would like to hear a little bit more, there is some stuff I'd like to just briefly talk about. So a couple of data points. First, I was talking to my friend and former guest of the show, Scott Mann. Um, Scott, as you may remember, is a former Green Beret, wrote a show, a play, uh, called Last Out, The Elegy of a Green Beret. The play then got televised and put on Amazon. And now he's back doing it as a live play. Now the COVID has kind of subsided. And I was talking to him after the first weekend of shows that he did in Tampa. I don't think I'm telling any tales out of school by talking about this. But Scott uh, mentioned, he was like, it's really bad out here. And I was like, in what way? And he was like, well, with suicide and with trauma and mental health. And the way Scott does last out is he does a Q&A at the end of the show and then also has therapists standing by to talk to people, um, which I think is good. And the way I look at it is like, yeah, if you're going to tear open a scab, it's great. If It's very nice of you to stand around and have people ready to heal the scab back up after you've ripped it open. And that's kind of what he does. Well, apparently he did seven 
trauma interventions after a performance. I was like, yeah, that's really bad, man. And it's not like this is a new subject, you know, suicide awareness and prevention have been, I mean, they've been topics for, you know, 10, 15 years now. But he was like, this spike is like nothing he's seen. I know anecdotally at West Point, since we're close to West Point, that, you know, there's been a spike of stuff there as well. So those two things really got me thinking about the mental health crisis in the military. And I am not an expert and I'm no longer in the military. So my perspective is very limited. My aperture is very small. But from my foxhole, what it seems like to me and what I posit to you is that this may be rooted in three different stimuli, let's say. The first is geopolitical, the second is cultural, and the third is technological. I'll take these in kind of a random order. The technological is the easiest to talk about because it's one we're all kind of aware of. Okay, technology, social media. Okay, right. The more social media is increased, we're seeing mental health spikes everywhere in the country in all facets of society, not just the veteran community. But for us in the veteran community, when we look at it, we're like, wow, that is a lot. And it is, it, you can argue it. And I don't, again, I'm, I don't know the numbers on this. So this is a layman talking, not an expert with empirical data. But it, it strikes me that probably the spike we're seeing in the veteran community may not be that much greater than what we're seeing in the civilian community. But all of it is fueled by social media. And I think the aspect of social media that maybe we don't look at as much as some of the other aspects, we talk about the toxicity of social media, the pervasiveness of it, what have you. I think the contagion of social media is a big thing that um, everybody's trying each other's experiences on for size. Everybody's trying each other emo- each other's emotions on for size. And that, you know, again, can become toxic and all the rest of it. But that contagious effect where, you know, a bad thought doesn't necessarily rise and die just with you. It's now shared and it multiplies in the ether of social media. So, you know, you, you as much as that's not a secret, and I'm not blowing any minds by saying that, uh, you know, we can't, you know, that doesn't mean just because it's obvious, it's not a big contributing fa- factor. So social media, that's the technological. The cultural, okay. The cultural aspect, I think we see with the end of the GWAT. Um, the military has changed. You're seeing now a lot of E8s, senior E7s, O4s that are slick-sleeved. People haven't had combat deployments in a long time, many. And there's not that many theaters you can do that. I was talking to a woman the other day whose nephew is currently in Iraq. And she said he really volunteered and was just looking for any excuse to go there because he felt like he wasn't going to do the military as a career and he wanted to at least get as close to the action as possible, and that's the only place he could really go. Um, that's a, you know, it's a different military. 
and um, the amount of GWAT veterans that are separating or retiring from the military is pretty significant. So the institutional knowledge, um, there's a drain there. There's a cultural drain of the culture of war fighters versus those that were fighting in generally a peacetime military. I think there's also the inevitable cultural shift when you now have people entering the military that were born after 9-11. And it's worth remembering 9-11 and the GWAT. You know, somebody brought this up to me the other day. They're like, you know, those aren't taught in school. So in high school, you're not learning a lot about that because those are current events. They're not, there's ongoing, they're not history. So it gets kind of short shrift in the curriculum. So a lot of people, uh, and because it's still dynamic and changing and there's different variables, and because the teachers don't know an awful lot about it, <laughs> you are very ignorant about what's going on, it really has been under-covered in the, in the educational system. So you have a lot of people entering the military that aren't really thinking about the GWAT or 9-11. And so not only are they not joining to fight in the GWAT, they're not even that sure about why that was being fought. And this gets into my familiar refrain that I've mentioned before, where there's no, you know, there's no American lexicon for war anymore because the lexicon we have is outdated. It's from the Vietnam era. And those excuses, those arguments, those, that philosophical line of reasoning is outdated. It's about for a draftee's perspective. Um, so the, John Fogarty and CCR, I mean, yeah, that's great. It doesn't really apply to the GWAT, though. You know, uh, nobody's sending you. You volunteered to be here. So, um, but we don't have that language. And culturally, I think the the youngsters that are joining the military now um, are not necessarily standing on the firmest intellectual ground or philosophical ground for why the GWAT was fought and... Um, their role in it, their the American military's role in it, and what the institution really is like that they're joining. This also gets into the um, often commented uh, uh, or often discussed, much discussed. What's the word on the phrase I'm looking for? Much discussed. The much discussed um, uh, thoughts about the the um, fraying of civil society, where. People don't join an organization to support the organization. They join an organization as a platform to elevate their personal brand. And I think there's probably a touch of that um, that we see where people aren't that intelligent about the institutions, the military institutions they're joining, and in, especially in the enlisted ranks. And... Um, People are trying to change the institutions or leverage the institutions for their own personal benefit. They're not necessarily trying to add to those institutions or fall in on that history. And that's because the public education system hasn't really told you that much about the recent history of the U.S. military. And many people in the military, I think, have been quick to sell out a lot of the warfighting um, bravado and history and legend of the military. And that gets to my other point about the culture. Uh, when I had an assignment um, in DC 
and I got to see leadership up close in a way that I had never seen before and, and, you know, kind of strategic level leadership, I realized how much of a divide there was between that and the boots on ground. And you see this in mill Twitter and social media. You see the, the, all the folks that, you know, not all the folks, I shouldn't generalize to that extent. So many that are on military Twitter or military social media are at the strategic command level or officers, and they're really coming down on people and really witch hunting for people they disagree with. And the rank and file aren't. I mean, now you have some rank and file that are Instagram models or whatever, so I guess they come in all shapes and sizes. But my point is simply, that's a real cultural divide. The the Beltway military versus the field military is a real thing. And it exacerbates the divide between officers and enlisted men, uh, or enlisted service, service members. Um, but what they value, what they're you know, the, the careerism or um, value difference in value systems that you're seeing is significant, I think. And um, I think that gap is widening inside the military. Again, so what does that have to do with mental health and suicide prevention and all that? And I'm not trying to use suicide prevention as, a, as a, the, the tool at hand to try to fix what I perceive as potential problems inside the military. But I do think that there is a relationship there. I think there's more of a disconnect between the enlisted and the officer ranks, the beltway versus the field. And it's just divides. It's just division, division, division. And I think that leads, that can't help but lead to a sense of detachment, disenfranchisement, uh, disillusionment and a lack of trust in each other each other's values each other's motives each other's capabilities and that's not good for anybody and that gets I'm going to use that as a jumping off point to my what I think is a very underreported aspect of the mental health crisis which is the geopolitical aspect and by that I mean that I think a lot of service members and veterans are unsure if America is good. They are unsure if America is generally the good guy in the scenarios that they've witnessed, whether on a tactical level or a strategic level or a historical level. I think tactically, a lot of people have seen bad things during the global war on terror. And even outside the global war on terror, as I said, the lack of trust, the divide, the personality conflicts and all that, the toxic leadership, different things that you see that would divide our military. I think there's a lack of, you know, a lot of people are questioning going, well, how could I be fighting for a good thing if somebody couldn't stop pulling the trigger and women and children died? Or if so-and-so got drummed out of the military for such a, you know, nothing burger of an infraction, whereas this person got away with murder. Maybe not literally, but, you know, somebody else got away doing a whole bunch of stuff because they were part of the this clique or had this outlook or had this top cover or had this rank. 
And what I would say about those kind of tactical disillusionments is that those are universal. They're not particular to America's military. They do happen. They are sometimes even commonplace, especially if there's bad leadership. That's human beings. That's universal. That should not reflect on whether or not America, as a concept and as a country, is the good guy. That should reflect on much more granular details. Who are the leaders? What decisions did they make? And all that. Sometimes it just reflects on the nature of war. I'll quote one of my favorite quotes from John Stuart Mill in Principles of Political Economy. War is an ugly thing, but not the ugliest of things. The decayed and degraded state of moral and patriotic feeling which thinks that nothing is worth a war is much worse. When a people are used as mere human instruments for firing cannon or thrusting bayonets in the service and for the selfish purposes of a master, such war degrades a people. A war to protect other human beings against tyrannical injustice, a war to give victory to their own ideas of right and good, and which is their own war carried on for an honest purpose by their free choice, is often the means of their regeneration. A man who has nothing which he is willing to fight for, nothing which he cares about more than he does about his personal safety, is a miserable creature who has no chance of being free unless made and kept so by the exertions of better men than himself. As long as justice and injustice have not terminated their ever-renewing fight for ascendancy in the affairs of mankind, human beings must be willing, when need is, to do battle for the one against the other. I think that's a great quote to illustrate the necessity of war as a tool. doesn't mean that all war is correct. But I think, contra my friend Tom Schumann, who wrote the foreword to Smedley Butler's War is a Racket in the reissue, uh, war is not a racket. Depends on the war. And to paint with such a broad brushstroke is, I think, incorrect. War is sometimes incredibly necessary and incredibly redeeming. Doesn't mean it's not ugly, but it doesn't mean it's wrong. And that's where we get to the geopolitical part. I think as Americans, but certainly as veterans and certainly as service members, we should be absolutely rock-ribbed and resolute that America is the greatest country on the earth, and we should be able to prove that to ourselves. We should be able to look and see that the sins of America you can find in almost every other country on this planet. America is not the first, the last, or the worst offenders of any sin you want to accuse America of. That doesn't make it right. That doesn't mean we should ignore it. But it also just means, yeah, America is populated with people. People do bad things. These These are the bad things we did. They're not unique to us. They're not particularly American. They are what we did, and we should own that and be ashamed and, you know, atone and whatever, which we have. But that's not what makes America America. 
That's what makes America human and universal. What makes America America are the successes of America. And that no other country can match. No other country in the history of mankind has defeated two enemies in war and stayed behind to build them up into peaceful, independent nations. That was the Marshall Plan. No country in the history of mankind has helped as much as America has helped in Africa with PEPFAR, with AIDS research, AIDS funding, AIDS programs. I forget what the exact percentage is of United States charitable aid around the world, but no other country comes close now or has ever come close to our charitable contributions. In Afghanistan, we did not ask for that fight. But we weren't going to sit back and get punched in the face either. And when 3,000 of my neighbors were killed in front of my eyes, the American military went to where the attacks were planned and where the grew the, the terror groups were located. That's why we were in Afghanistan, in case anybody seems to have forgotten. Afghanistan is a country that desperately needs adult supervision. It, if you know the history of Afghanistan, you will know it as a highly leveraged country. It is a country that constantly has exchanged masters. Persia had it. Russia had it. England had it. Not all of it. But, you know, they'd encroach. All these powers, Afghanistan's fate has always been decided by its neighbors. Those neighbors, by the way, happen to include every single geopolitical enemy the United States has. Very valuable piece of real estate. Very necessary that we go there and root out the groups that were able to plan attacks on our homeland in peace and go and root them out. Would have been better had we stayed. As I have said before at the time, and I'll just briefly reiterate here, the withdrawal was a colossal mistake from conception to execution. To everyone that says, yeah, it was 20 years, it was probably time we got out. No, it wasn't. Absolutely wrong. And thank God we beat the Nazis in four years. Because if we'd had to fight them 20 years, would all these people be going, you know, who are we to impose American democracy on Germany? Who are we to foist our ideals on these poor Germans? You know, Nazism isn't really that bad. I mean, really, who are the Jews? I mean, does it really matter? How many of us would have been saying that if we'd had to fight the Nazis for 20 years? Good thing we didn't. But in Afghanistan, that was the rhetoric, that face-saving cost-benefit analysis rhetoric that many people tried to adopt, I believe, mistakenly. Instead, we unilaterally, willingly gave up maybe the most valuable piece of real estate on the planet. Not just for the rare earths and all the other stuff, but, but strategically. Something that was on the doorstep of every one of our geopolitical enemies something that truly allowed us to keep tabs on a lot of bad actors, not to mention take chess pieces off the board in terms of folks that were actively plotting and planning against us. 
in Iraq, and I'm in a distinct minority on this, we were absolutely right to go in. If you served in Iraq, you have nothing to be ashamed about. You should be proud. It doesn't mean that everything that happened in Iraq was a smashing success. Of course it wasn't. Find me a war where there weren't atrocities, where there weren't mistakes. It doesn't exist. But was it right to go into Iraq? Of course. In 2003, in the wake of 9-11, when our country is reeling and on our back foot and trying to go hunt down Al-Qaeda and figure out how vast are the terror networks targeting our country, to have a dictator with the motive, the means, and the opportunity to use WMDs and or finance terror that can hit our homeland, bragging that he can do that, it would have been the height of negligence to not go into Iraq. It would have been unconscionable. And if Saddam chose to lie to his closest generals, not to mention his famous source curveball, about his capabilities with WMDs, well, that's on him. This was not a law enforcement action. We're, we're, they we're not trying to prove this case in a court of law. We have to make the best assessment we can to execute a plan. And that's what foreign policy and national security is about. It's not a law enforcement measure. No, Saddam did not end up having on hand a smoking gun of vast amounts of WMDs. He had some WMDs, not as many as we thought. Was that a ludicrous assessment on our part to believe he had some? No. Besides the fact that he was bragging he had a ton, which, by the way, a lot of trains with lead-covered tops that went to Syria right as the invasion was about to happen and during the initial stages of the, of the invasion. But let's ignore that for the time being. The biggest point was that Saddam had used WMDs multiple times in Iraq against the Kurds. So it's not a flight of fancy when you hear that he's bragging about WMDs and his ability to use them now overseas. It's not, it's not ludicrous to think that that was a possibility. And in the wake of 9-11, it would have been negligent to treat it as that. We know, I mean, we know, my God, we stumbled into Saddam training Ansar al-Islam in northern Iraq. We know now from Osama bin Laden's files, you know, how much Venn diagram overlap there was between Saddam's operations and his funding and Al-Qaeda's. So to go into Iraq, no, not a mistake. To have served in Iraq, no, nothing to be ashamed of. Anyone that served should take comfort that they served. Yes, we withdrew from Afghanistan. Yes, the GWAT is on its last legs. There is a big difference between having fought a war for 20, 20 plus years only to withdraw versus never having fought in the first place. You did good. You allowed good to happen. You allowed people a possibility, an opportunity. That's saying something. Hopefully this helps. Hopefully this means anything. And if it doesn't, and if I'm here sitting alone in my underwear just saying all this, <laughs> so be it. Inshallah. But I hope it helps.
and I hope we stop harming ourselves. Because the flip side of this is I do believe veterans are the answer to so many of America's problems. It's not that we're, we all think in a uniform way. It's not that we're all going to be singing off the same sheet of music. We're going to disagree with each other and all that. But I do believe veterans understand common purpose. They do understand reality and what real problems look like. And they do understand coming together with ideological opponents. Or ideological... uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Maybe not opponents, lest we think that's enemies, but ideological... Yeah. People of different ideologies. Let me say that. So I think veterans are have an awful lot to offer. And to any veteran that is thinking of harming himself or any service member, that is a true crime against yourself. You are way more valuable. You are the most valuable commodity this country has. You need to stay. <laughs> you need to stay here. And you need to populate the country with kids that will listen to you and understand and appreciate what you went through. That's the view from my foxhole. Now, before I start talking anymore and sounding more like Andy Rooney, let me leave it there. But I hope that helped. Merry Christmas to everybody. Happy New Year to everybody. Thank you to everyone that's tuned in and been a part of this show. Um, Certainly thank you to the guests. Um, Thanks to Charlie and everybody at Havoc. Um, Love you guys. Next week, the official Profiles in Havoc year-end episode. So do not miss that. My thanks, of course, to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. On behalf of Chris Susi and everyone at Havoc Journal, see you next week for Profiles in Havoc year-end episode. Have a good one, guys.